Hello and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Saturday, March 11th. I'm your reader, Jim Hill. Well, first let's have a look at the weather for eastern Iowa. Today in the Cedar Rapids, Iowa City area, it'll be cloudy. Uh, snow is likely. The wind from the southeast at 15 to 25 miles per hour. We'll have a high of 35 and a low of 29. Tomorrow, Sunday, uh, it's a good chance of snow early. It'll be cloudy. The wind from the west at 20 to 30 miles per hour. We'll have a high of 33 and a low of 24. And then on Monday, mostly cloudy. The wind from the northwest at 15 to 25 miles per hour. We'll have a high of 30 and a low of 14. On Tuesday, partly cloudy, the wind from the south at 5 to 15 miles per hour. We'll have a high of 35 and a low of 27. The normal high for this day is 44. The normal low, 25. The record high was 75 in 1972. The record low was 12 below zero in 1948. The sun will set tonight at 7 09, it will rise tomorrow at 7.23. We have a little weather story today, this one from meteorologist Corey Thompson. Cedar River flood risk decreases slightly. The final spring snowmelt flood outlook is out from the National Weather Service and it shows a slight decline in the risk for flooding along the Cedar River generally. The forecast probability at Cedar Rapids saw a decline at, at only a 12% risk for minor flooding through the early June through early June. That's well below the seasonal average risk of 26% in a given year and is lower than the first two outlooks issued by the National Weather Service this year. Remember though that low probability events can occur and that 12% is roughly a 1 in 8 chance of flooding. Odds are the river stays in its banks this season as it has the past two springs, but we cannot totally rule it out. And again, that little weather story is from meteorologist Corey Thompson. And now I will turn to the front page of today's Gazette for our first story. And this one appears under the headline, Two Cedar Rapids Projects Awarded $3.8 million from Destination Iowa. Lightline Loop in Czech Village, Nubo, African American Museum of Iowa Projects Get Boost. And the story is by Marissa Payne of the Gazette. The City of Cedar Rapids and African American Museum of Iowa are among the recipients of the state's final round of destination Iowa grants that aim to boost Iowa's national profile by attracting more tourists. The city was awarded $3 million toward outdoor recreation in the Czech Village and New Bohemia district, and the museum received $800,000 toward its renovation project. Governor Kim Reynolds announced uh, that was announced by uh, Governor Kim Reynolds on Thursday. Eight other projects received funding. 
The award funds come from the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. Reynolds last year announced $100 million to create the program. She allocated an extra $15 million to support projects in rural communities that went unfunded in previous rounds. Overall, Destination Iowa awards were granted to 46 projects, totaling $115 million, activating $480.27 million in total investment. Quote, Destination Iowa has inspired communities in all corners of the state to dream big about projects that will bolster quality of life and attract newcomers, Reynolds said. The demand is so high, especially in rural areas, that I've extended the program to help more rural communities realize those dreams. Cedar Rapids project is focused on the Lightline Loop. Ah, uh, uh, let me read, begin that again. Cedar Rapids project is focused on the Lightline Loop uh, in Czech Village and Nubo. The award represents 16% of the total project investment of nearly $19.3 million. Quote, this is another great example of an approach to public-private partnerships that the city of Cedar Rapids has perfected, city manager Jeff Pomerantz said in a statement. By investing local, state, and private dollars, this project will bring remarkable amenities to the southwest quadrant, amenities that will benefit the entire Cedar Rapids community while drawing visitors from across the state and nation. The project largely encompasses the construction of a new Czech village roundhouse and builds upon the loop created by the proposed Alliant Energy Light Line Bridge that connects the two historic neighborhoods, Czech Village and Nubo. Uh, <clears throat> bringing back the roundhouse has been a longtime vision for many, for many Cedar Rapidians, Pomerantz said. This project is another example of the city's commitment to listening to our community members and responding to their requests. In previous applications, Cedar Rapids officials suggested investments in the Greenway and tourism experiences. Uh, let me start that again. <laughs> in previous applications, Cedar Rapids officials suggested investments in the Greenway and tourism experiences have been diverted over the years toward recovery from the 2008 and 2016 floods, as well as the 2020 derecho. The Cedar Rapids Tourism Office has successfully showcased Czech Village and Nubo to visitors typically attracting 600 to 1,200 spectators for large conventions and conferences, according to the city's application. But a lack of marketable gathering areas with a unique draw in Cedar Rapids has posed a challenge. The light line loop is estimated to result in an economic impact of about $4.7 million to $12.5 million a year. The city initially sought $27 million to enhance outdoor recreation around the Greenway along the Cedar River in Czech Village and Nubo, but later 
pared down its request to about $66.3 million. <clears throat> Quote, with the help of private investments, the support of the district and Czech village organizations, and now this destination Iowa grant and roundhouse, will join several amenities envisioned in our destination Iowa application, positively impacting tourism opportunities in Cedar Rapids, Pomerantz said. We are excited to move these projects forward and grateful for the state's investment in Cedar Rapids. The African American Museum of Iowa was awarded $800,000 to support a major renovation project and to reinstall the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. inspired trumpet sculpture and garden. The award makes up 17% of the total project investment of about $4.8 million. While Cedar Rapids is installing floodgates and doing street construction work outside the museum's front door at 55 12th Avenue Southeast, the, muse the museum took the opportunity to close and do its $5 million renovation project. The facility is expected to reopen in December. Museum direct Pardon me, Museum Executive Director Lanisha Cassell, in a statement, thanked the Governor and Iowa Economic Development Authority, which doled out the ARPA funds for awarding the grant to the museum's Voices, Inspira Voices Inspiring Project campaign. <laughs> Let me start that again. Uh, <clears throat> Museum Executive Director Lanisha Cassell, in a statement, thanked the Governor and Iowa Economic Development Authority, which doled out the ARPA funds, for awarding the grant to the museum's Voices Inspiring Progress campaign. Quote, this award is further testament to the significance of our AAMI in teaching about our black heritage, Cassell said. Most importantly, it enhances our ability to educate Iowans about our full history while lifting up the voices that have gone unheard. Pomerantz also acknowledged the museum's award. Quote, We are very proud to have this remarkable cultural institution <coughs> located, in Cedar <coughs> pardon me, located in Cedar Rapids, Pomerantz said. The museum is a point of pride for our community and provides valuable resources to Cedar Rapids, the state of Iowa, and our greater region. And now I will pause for a second, have a sip of coffee. All right. <coughs> Let's see what else we have here from the front page of the Gazette. Well, there's this story. It appears under the headline, Cedar Rapids Investigating Whether Police Chief have, Has Aged Out of Position. Department's Deputy Chief Serving as Acting Police Chief. And this story is by Emily Anderson of the Gazette. <clears throat> City officials are working to confirm the certification status of Cedar Rapids Police Chief Wayne German, after he turned 66 this month. <clears throat> Deputy Chief Tom Jonker is serving as acting chief, according to an email 
uh, <clears throat> Cedar Rapids City Manager Jeff Pomerantz sent to members of the department, which was shared with the Gazette. <clears throat> the email states that the position of the Iowa Law Enforcement Academy, which handles law enforcement certifications, is that all peace officer certifications expire when the officer turns 66, regardless of position. Pomerance wrote in the email, quote, I would like to thank you all for your hard work and dedication to the Cedar Rapids community. I am grateful for your patience and understanding as we work through this matter. I am committed to keeping the police department updated. German remains an employee of the city. Uh, Philip Plotz, the communications division's manager for Cedar Rapids, said Friday, calling the situation a, quote, confidential personnel matter. Plotz did not clarify whether the chief is on leave or working in a different role. Uh, German could not be reached for for comment Friday. German started as the department's 43rd chief in October 2012, and was chosen from a field of 35 candidates. He had spent 32 years in policing when he arrived in Cedar Rapids and had previously been assistant chief of the Montgomery County Police Department in Maryland. Portions of Iowa Code (coughs) Portions of Iowa Code uh, appear to have conflicting language Period. Iowa Code 362.10 states that the maximum age for a police officer, marshal, or firefighter employed for police duty or the duty of fighting fires is 65 years of age. City officials pointed to Iowa Code Chapter 400, in which the age limit is reiterated in, uh, in 400.17. Quote, the maximum age for a police officer or firefighter covered by this chapter, chapter 400, and employed for police duty or the duty of fighting fires is 65 years of age. But chapter 400.6 includes language that department heads like police chiefs are exceptions to the rules outlined in chapter 400. The section goes on to say, that assistant fire chiefs and assistant police chiefs in cities with departments of fewer than 250 members aren't excluded. The Cedar Rapids Department has 212 sworn officers and more than 60 non-sworn personnel, according to its website. A bill, Senate File 183, that was introduced in the Iowa Legislature this session would adjust the wording of Iowa Code Section 362.10 to clarify that the age maximum applies to both part-time and full-time police officers and firefighters. The new bill doesn't say anything specifically regarding chiefs and other department heads. The next subcommittee meeting for the bill is scheduled for 12.30 p.m. March 14th. Jeff Brinkley, Vice President of the Board of the Iowa Police Chiefs Association and the Mason City Police Chief uh, said he's seen situations in which a police officer has had to retire because they turned 66, 
but he's not aware of the situation happening before with a police chief. He said he'll be interested to see how the question is resolved. Quote, I don't think you probably want a street officer running around at 66, but I think certainly somebody in a leadership capacity in that kind of role or an upper administrator, I don't see the issue with it personally, Brinkley said. German was honored last year by the Iowa Police Chiefs Association as the Law Enforcement Executive of the Year. All right. Now I'll pause again and have another sip of coffee. Well, now we'll open the paper to the uh, Iowa Today page where I see uh, <clears throat> a couple of stories here. There, this one appears under the title, um, The University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics Drops Its Mask Requirement. Hospital warns staff not to ask patients or colleagues to wear masks under new rules. And the story is by Aaron Jordan of the Gazette. The University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics this week stopped requiring patients and health care providers to wear masks. The announcement came just a few days short of the third anniversary of the first COVID-19 hospitalization at UIHC on March 11, 2020. Face masks now are optional in all UIHC facilities, including Iowa River Landing and Quick Care Clinics except for people who have symptoms of a respiratory virus or unvaccinated employees. Face masks still will be required in places like the operating room or when patients are at risk of infection, which are pre-pandemic standards. The decision to stop requiring masks as of Wednesday reflects the decrease in COVID-19 cases and other respiratory illnesses in the community the UI reported. Vaccination and natural immunity from prior infection also have blunted the severity of the disease for many people. Masks are welcome for anyone who chooses to wear one, but UIHC administration warned caregivers not to ask patients or colleagues to wear them. Quote, questions and comments about mask wearing are strongly discouraged, UIHC responded to a list of frequently asked questions. Members of the university community are expected to be respectful of one another's personal decisions. Whether or not to wear a mask is a personal decision that each person must make for themselves and for their own reasons. Wearing or not wearing a mask has become something of a political statement in addition to a means of reducing infection. In May 2021, Governor Kim Reynolds prohibited schools from requiring masks. A federal judge in November said districts must also accommodate vulnerable students and staff who wanted people to wear masks around them. Gazette columnist Althea Cole reported last week she was escorted out of a UIHC facility February 28th for refusing to wear a mask or face shield. 
Cole said she had a letter from her primary care provider saying her health issues prevent her from tolerating a face covering. The UIHC said the Wednesday announcement let me begin that again. The UIHC said the Wednesday announcement to no longer require masks was in the works well before Cole's experience at Ira River Landing. But the incident emphasizes tension that has existed at healthcare facilities, stores, and other places that have required face masks, face masks or even just public places where people disagree about mask use. Masking rules at corridor hospitals have fluctuated since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Mercy Medical Center uh, relaxed mask requirements in October, only to join Unity Point Health St. Luke's Hospital in temporarily reinstating the rules in December when cases of COVID and other respiratory viruses were on the rise. The Gazette asked UIHC whether there was a specific infection rate or COVID metric they used when deciding when to stop requiring masks, but the hospital staff did not provide that information by Friday afternoon. Now, I will turn to the Insight page of the Gazette, where First, we have this uh, Gazette editorial. Uh, it appears under the headline, Address Real Iowa Problems. Iowa's Republican-controlled legislature is using fabrication to hide inaction. Majority lawmakers have spent a lot of time this session assailing the state's public schools, and in particular, LGBTQ students. They've claimed transgender kids are a threat if they're allowed to use bathrooms corresponding with their gender identity and have moved to prohibit them from seeking gender-affirming health care, even with parental consent. They've moved to banish books uh, religious conservatives find offensive from school libraries claiming without merit that reading works by LGBTQ writers and authors of color will harm children. At the same time, they're seeking to force educators to inform parents if a student is transgender, which would harm, which could harm to, hmm, let me start that again. (laughs) At the same time, they're seeking to force educators to inform parents if a student is transgender, which could harm children if they face a backlash at home. Schools could no, would no longer be required to teach kids about the benefits of getting an HPV vaccine, which could save them from a future cancer diagnosis. So Republicans have kicked up a cloud of fake culture war threats to please their right-wing base and keep up with other red states bashing transgender kids for political gain. It's shameful and has sparked an outcry across the state, as it should. But behind all those cruel theatrics, our state's real problems and and priorities appear to be getting little attention. Lawmakers have done much to punish and scold our public schools, but little or nothing to improve them. 
Republicans feign concern for the mental health of LGBTQ Iowans. While the state's system of mental health care, including services for children, remains woefully underfunded. Iowa has the nation's second highest cancer rate, and we're the only state with a rising number of cancer cases. Giving HPV's vaccine the silent treatment in schools is an odd way to respond to this news. Iowa's water remains dirty, and lawmakers are doing nothing meaningful about it. The Department of Natural Resources failed for months to obtain information on chemicals used and stored at a manufacturing plant in Marengo before an explosion injured a dozen workers. That failure and efforts to avoid a future tragedy should be on the legislature's agenda. We face a daunting workforce shortage, but so far the highest profile bill to address it is legislation that would that would weaken child labor laws. We have yet to hear the legislature's plan for addressing the shortage of child care, the shortage of health care workers, and the shortage of teachers. So far, there's been a shortage of ideas at the State House. All this while projecting a budget surplus of $2 billion. That will help cover more and more tax cuts. The list goes on. Republicans are more interested punching around marginalized kids than they are in addressing what should be real front-burner issues. Their agenda feeds the perpetual outrage of their most extreme supporters, but it's no recipe for a growing, prosperous Iowa. And again, that is the Gazette's editorial. Now I'll pause for a second and have another sip of coffee. All right, what else do we have here on the Insight page? Well, we have community letters, and today there's just one letter. This from Connie Kennedy of Cedar Rapids. What's the matter with Iowa? In uh, 2004, Thomas Frank published a book titled, What's the Matter with Kansas? His basic argument was simple. Republicans were using an emotionally fraught issue to blind voters to their actual agenda. In this case, the emotional issue was abortion. Once in power, Republican measures to cut taxes resulted in an array of problems, best illustrated by the impact on the public school system. You can look it up. The same thing is happening today in Iowa, with the difference being that the emotional hook is LGBTQ. It's not a real problem. It's a problem manufactured by the Republicans in our legislature to blind voter awareness of a lack of action on real problems, things like a a lack of access to child care for working parents, underfunding of public public schools, including the state universities, the sad state of our roads and bridges, and the list goes on. Dueling headlines on Wednesday's edition of the Gazette pretty well sums up this approach. Quote, 
bathroom bill advances as GOP targets trans youths. On the top, and uh, quote, Iowa has second highest cancer rate in the nation right below. Just as in Kansas, the bill for this abuse of power will come due. At some point, maybe Thomas Frank will write, what's the matter with Iowa? We can't say we weren't warned. And again, that letter is from Connie Kennedy of Cedar Rapids. You're listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Saturday, March 11th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now let's turn to uh, today's obituaries. All right, well, first we have the, the short notices <clears throat> from Anamosa. Bernice Shada, that's spelled S-H-A-D-A, 96, died Monday, March 6th. Arrangements are with the Goch Funeral Home. From Cedar Rapids, Nicole L. Comrade, that's spelled C-O-M-R-I-E-D, 74, uh, died Wednesday, March 8th. Arrangements are with the are with Iowa Cremation. From Cedar Rapids, Margaret M. Doyle, 89, died Friday, March 10th. The uh, Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Cedar Rapids is handling the arrangements. From Cedar Rapids, Nancy um, Eames, or is it Liams? At any rate, it's uh, Nancy Eames, I think. I don't know. One or the other. 75 died Friday, March 10th. Arrangements are with the Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service. From Coralville, Diane Campbell, 55, died Monday, March 6th. Arrangements are with the Lansing Funeral and Cremation Service. From Maquoketa, Sherry T. Snyder, 54, died Wednesday, March 8th. Arrangements are with the Carson Celebration of Life Center. From Monona, Robert Allen Mieni, that's spelled M-I-E-N-E, 78, died Friday, March 10th. Arrangements are with the Leonard Grau Funeral Home and Cremation Service. From Rochester, William, also known as Willie Vance Daledge, that's spelled D-A-L-L-E-G-E, 76, died Thursday, March 9th. Arrangements are with the Fry Funeral Home of Tipton. Wakon, Dorothy J. Gello, spelled G-E-L-O, 101, died Friday, uh, March 10th. Arrangements are with the Martin Grau Funeral Home. And under other deaths, Madonna Jean Toberman, 87, of uh, Prairie Duchene, Wisconsin, died Wednesday, March 8th. And uh, the Thornburg Grau Funeral Home and Cremation Service is handling the arrangements for that. And moving down the page to the longer notices, um, from Iowa City, Bruce Platter, spelled P-L-A-T-T-E-T-E-R, 82, uh, passed away Wednesday, March 8th. Visitation will be held Monday, March 
20th at Lensing Funeral and Cremation Service in Iowa City, where the family will greet friends from 2 to 5. A memorial service will follow at 5 p.m. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the Antique Car Museum of Iowa or to, pardon me, or to Trinity United Methodist Church in Riverside. From Ryan, Donald D. Arnold Jr., 71, of Ryan, Iowa, passed away on Wednesday, March 8th, at his home. A celebration of life will be held to honor Don at Leonard Muller Funeral Home in the summer. Details will be published in the Manchester Press and on leonardmuller.com at a later date. From Vinton, John David Isbell of Vinton passed away on March 1st in Des Moines after a battle with cancer. A celebration of of Dave's life um, will be held from 11.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. Sunday, May 21st, at the Carl Fritz Henning Shelter at Ledges State Park. From Greeley, Alfred, also known as Al Henry Cruz, 85 of Greeley, passed away on Thursday, March 9th, in the comfort of his home, surrounded by family. Uh, <clears throat> a massive Christian burial will be at, held at 10.30 a.m. on Monday, March 13th, at St. Mark's Catholic Church in Edgewood, with, John, with the Reverend John Haugen presiding. A visitation will be from 2 to 6 p.m. on Sunday, March 12th at Leonard Muller Funeral Home in Manchester where there will be a 6 p.m. scripture service. Friends may also call from 9 to 10 a.m. at the church on Monday. Uh, interment will, with military rites will be at St. Joseph Catholic Cemetery in Greeley. From Cedar Rapids, uh, William Peffer 98 of Cedar Rapids, formerly of Iowa City and North Liberty, died Saturday, March 4th at Unity Point St. Luke's Hospital. A celebration of Bill's life will be held at a later date. To share a thought, memory, or condolence with his family, please visit Gay and Chia Funeral and Cremation Service website at www.gayandchia.com. From Iowa City, Donald J. Uh, Jelly, that's spelled J-E-H-L-E, 84, lifelong resident of Iowa City, died March 3rd under the compassionate and professional care of Iowa City Hospice and all the staff at the Birdhouse Hospice Home of Johnson County. No public services are planned at this time. To share a memory, thought, or condolence, please visit Gay and Chia Funeral and Cremation Service website at www.gayandchia.com. From Center Point, Donna Valenta, 85, of Center Point, passed away peacefully Tuesday evening, March 7th. The family will be holding a private service. In lieu of flowers, please donate to a charity of your choice. Murdoch Glenwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids assisted the family. And finally, from Cedar Rapids, Karen K., uh, 
Puffet Buck, 82, of Cedar Rapids, uh, came to the end of her courageous health journey on March 8th. A celebration of life services will be held at Calvary Baptist Church in Cedar Rapids, period. Visitation will be on Monday, March 13th, from 4.30 to 7 p.m. at the church. Funeral service will be on Tuesday, March 14th, at 10.30 a.m., followed by a luncheon at church. Entombment will be at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Okay. And now, I will turn to the sports page of the Gazette for a story. Um, And uh, stories on the front page today are dominated by the the boy by basketball, as you might expect. Um, We have this. Boys State Basketball Tournament Story, Class 3A. Um, just out of reach. Lead title lead title slip away as Xavier falls to Bondurant Farrar. And this story is by <coughs> Jeff Johnson of the Gazette. It was a season in which they were ranked number one for the first time in school history. They made it to the state tournament for the first time in five years. They made it to the Class 3A Finals. They even ended up having the all-tournament team captain. But the biggest prize ultimately eluded Cedar Rapids' Xavier Saints. The thing they cared about most. Bondurant Farrar completed a perfect season with some timely plays and free throws in crunch time and beat Xavier 58-55 in a beauty of a 3A championship game last night at Wells Fargo Arena. The Blue Jays ran the table at 26-0 despite leading for only 5 minutes and 31 seconds of this tensely played affair. Xavier was ahead for 24 uh, 24 minutes apparently. That cliché about so close yet so far, period. Quote, it hurts, obviously. It stings, Xavier head coach Mike Freeman said. Our kids competed their tails off. We told them, you don't walk out of that locker room with your heads down. They gave us everything they had. We told them to leave it on the floor, and they absolutely did tonight. Quote, we left it all out there. Agreed. Oh, let me read that sentence again. Quote, we left it all out there, uh, agreed Xavier's Joseph Lanker. We don't need to hang our heads about that. We did what we could, gave it our all. Xavier, at 20 and 7, uh, led, by, led by one at the end of the first quarter and at halftime. It led by as many as nine in the second half, with Lemker having a huge third quarter with three... Th- three-pointers. The Saints still had a lead of five going to the fourth, but Bondurant Farrar refused to wilt. A Reed Boltzgraf Trey 
gave the Blue Jays a 46-45 lead with six minutes to go, but Xavier responded right back with five straight Joe Bean points. Tied at 52 with under a minute left, uh, uh, Bondurant Farrar got a backdoor layup from Jackson Freed, only to have Aiden Yamelkowski come right back with a huge three to give Xavier a 55-54 lead with 40 with 46 seconds left. Yamilkoski led the Saints with 17 points and was selected the 3A All-Tournament captain. Faltzgraf made two free throws as Yamilkoski followed out with 29.7 seconds left to put Bondurant-Farrar back ahead. Xavier worked for a final shot, but Lemker was stripped of the ball trying to penetrate the left side of the lane with 4.1 seconds to go. Waltzgraf made two more free throws, and Lemker's desperation three at the, buzzer, at the buzzer was no good. Xavier seemingly did everything but win this game. Quote, absolutely, said Xavier's Tyler Netolecki, the six-foot-eight junior, who was such a large, int- who was such a large interior presence with 14 points and 11 rebounds. Quote, it stings for sure. This is what we worked for all season. A lot of the guys before the season just get in and keep grinding to come so close, have it be right there. It stings. Colby Collison led Bondurant Farrar with 19 points, a key cog in the fourth quarter comeback. Baltzgraf finished with 15. Quote, an undefeated season, I didn't expect that. Falsgraf said, but here we are. Quote, the fourth quarter, we just said, let's get it, Bondurant for our coach, Travis Evans said, and they did. All right. Well, uh, we also have this uh, uh, boys' basketball tournament story. Um <clears throat> Grandview Christian, this is class 1A, by the way, uh, Grandview Christian, just too good for Lynx. Northland settles for second as number one Thunder complete per- perfect season. And the story is by Jeff Johnson of the Gazette. No miracle finish this time. So it's second place for the Northland Lynx, which is never a bad season. Grandview Christian... Uh, its super-tall front line and super-quick point guard was simply too much Friday afternoon in the Class 1A State Basketball Tournament Championship game. The top-ranked Thunder completed a perfect season with a 63-46 win over Northland in the rubber match of their title game Troika against each other. Grandview won the 2018 championship game by three points, North Lynn last year's by four. And, uh, <clears throat> um, quote, that's a buzzsaw team, said North Lynn's Tate Hot Hoganberry. It just sucks, you know. We put it together for four years with these small town kids. Going up against those guys, there's not much you can do about it. Sometimes you're just outmatched. Northland at 26-1 and one, got to this game with an unreal comeback in Wednesday night's semifinals against Bremson St. Mary's, 
rallying from a 16-point hole in the fourth quarter. That just wasn't that just wasn't possible in this case. Grandview at 27 and 0 built a big lead in the second half, then gave all-tournament captain Josh Sanderson the ball to dribble around the perimeter until late in the shot clock. He'd then create for himself or a teammate. Sanderson, who had 41 points in GVC's semifinal win over West Harrison, had 18 points here and was named the 1A tournament's most valuable player. Quote, So many great memories with this team. The comebacks that we pulled off, we honestly shouldn't even have been here. After that Ramson game, uh, said Northland's Ben Wheatley, we were really fortunate to get another chance at it. Sanderson's point total in this game was matched by teammate Noah John, Noah John, who went to the basket repeatedly and successfully. John is a 6-5 starting forward. Emiliano, Emiliano Barantes, 6-9 and center. Daniel Tobiloba, a Kennesaw State recruit at seven, 7 feet tall. They were too much on the interior offensively and defensively, helping their team rack up a decisive rebound advantage of 41 to 25. Quote, I thought John was great for them, said Northland coach Mike Hilmer, who is one win shy of 500 for his career. Not only did he make the play, but he was smart enough to always go to the right area. Northland took a 2017 lead after the first quarter, thanks in large part to 11 points from Wheatley, including three three three-pointers. GVC guarded him tightly from there on out and held him to two additional points. Grandview used a slew of interior points in the second quarter to take a 32-24 lead, with Northland responding for the final six points of the half to go into the break down by only two. The Thunder built their lead back up in the third quarter and, would, and it was pretty much over. Quote, I think it was just a matter of time, said Hoganberry, who led Northland with 14 points, repeatedly trying to attack Tobaloba inside. We were just outmatched in, in there. Tobaloba had eight points, 15 rebounds, and four block shots. He was joined on the all-tournament team by Hoganberry, uh, Northland's Mason Beechen, West Harrison's Sage Evans, and Colin Homan and Colin Homan of Remsen St. Mary's. Uh, quote: "We'll definitely learn from this experience," said Becking, one of three underclassmen in Northland's starting lineup. Uh, <clears throat> it's a whole different team every year," Hilmer said. Yes, you have tradition, but you don't have the same team going out there on the court. I don't think our kids feel pressure. We just go out there and try to have fun and do the best we can. To be honest, our goal is to reach your potential, whatever that is. And I would say this group definitely did that this year. Right. And now, let's see what we have here. I uh, turn to the back page of the Gazette for the Dear Abby column, and this uh, column appears under the headline, GoFundMe Money Used to Pay for Extravagant Lifestyle. 
Dear Abby, my friend's house was severely damaged in a hurricane, and she lost a lot of the contents. Mind you, she was one of the lucky ones. Others in her community lost everything. Out of her friends started, pardon me, one of her friends started a GoFundMe account to help with repair costs, and it is now up to thousands of dollars. My problem with this is she's now on her third trip to Europe this year. She constantly spends money, has thousands of dollars in credit card debt, and tells me she's broke. Granted, two of the trips were partly funded by her partner. Normally, she would post details about her trips on social media, but this time she's not. Instead, she's posting pictures of her house construction and implying that she's still there. I've, cons I've considered outing her on social media, but I decided against doing that. I just can't get beyond what she's doing and don't think I can continue my friendship. Am I justified? And this letter is signed, Full Disclosure in Florida. Dear Full Disclosure, Yes, you are. What you have described is fraud. Go online to your friend's GoFundMe page that's GoFundMe.com, and you will find a report. You will find a report button. Because you have reason to believe she is misusing the funds that have been contributed for the repair of her house, use that report button to alert the GoFundMe team about this potential issue, and they will investigate. And again, that is the Dear Abby column for the day. Now I will pause for a second and have a, another sip of coffee. Well, let's see what else we have here. Well, we have this article on the living page. And uh, It appears under the headline, Ale Mary, that is it's spelled A-L-E, Mary. Uh, Blessing of the Bach serves Spiked Beer Fellowship. And this story is by Elijah Decius of the Gazette. As the burnt caramelized smell wafts through the air and the din of conversation fills the taproom at Iowa Brewing Company, a pseudo-religious motley crew readies behind the steel brewing tanks. The nun ties Father Hop's robe and fixes her earrings. Altar girls practice reciting their Ale Mary prayer in monotone unison. A blacksmith in costume readies the incense with a torch to lead a procession through the waiting crowd. St. Arnold, donning his red mitre and cassock, gets a head start on his beer. Uh, <clears throat> quote, With spring there is new life, said Jeff Allen, representing Father Hops to his parishioners. parishioners. Uh, also with Bach, the congregation replied. With spring the days are sunny and bright, he continued. Also with Bach, the crowd ob obliged. Father Hops leads an adapted Lord's Prayer, asking God to, to, quote, forgive our spillage as we forgive others who spill against us. 
and lead us not into incarceration. End quote. Roger Nidley, acting as St. Arnold, the patron saint of hop pickers and beer brewing, canonized in 1120 A.D., blesses the Bach-style beer, because the greatest sin of all is drinking unblessed beer, the crowd was admonished. After a glowing railroad spike, heated by a torch, is submerged in, in the ceremonial chalice, the crowd lines up around the room for their drinks to be blessed too. Each year, blessing of the Bach brings a different type of church to Iowa Brewing Company and other local breweries with a late winter blessing to coax an early spring. It's like communion in a campy and secular way. Except instead of wine, there's spiked beer. And the only saint mentioned in the room is shotgunning a beer from a chalice-topped crozier staff after the ceremony. Instead of communing with a higher power, fellow Bach drinkers are connecting with a community that returns that returns religiously each year, strengthening the friendships that have been forged since the event started in 1996. Quote, it's a kick, just one of those unique kitschy kinds of things, said Nancy Margulis, who has been attending the ceremony for decades. It's campy. Attendees come for the beer, but they stay for the fellowship. As the heated railroad spike hits the box-style beer, unfermented res residual sugars are caramelized, giving it a completely new flavor profile to the nose and mouth, making it slightly drier with a stronger caramel flavor. The Bach creator said the smell reminds him of chocolate chip cookies baking in the oven. Jeff Allen <coughs> has made virtually the same Bach recipe since he started blessing the Bach at his former Solon Brewery, Stone City Brewing, in 1996. After Stone City Brewing closed several years, <clears throat> several years ago, he started making the Bach at other local breweries with light mead malt, dark mead malt, caramel malt, and noble hops, the man who plays a monk every year said the ceremony made him realize he was onto something. After opening Solon's first brewing, first brewery 27 years ago, Alan heard a patron talk about a brewery, a brewery that brought in a priest to bless the Bach. That's all he needed to take the idea and run with it. His mother made him a monk's costume, still in use today, complete with a crown of hops. In his first blessing of the Bach, there he poured the beer, torched it, and slung it to a small crowd himself. As his small taproom overflowed with people lining up out the door for a glass of blessed Bach, he knew he had a tradition. Uh, Alan said, quote, they t that told me I've got something. The following year, Roger Nidley, pardon me, Nighty, uh, who plays St. Arnold, wanted to, wanted to join in the fun. Over the years, more and more characters were added. Altar Girls, Alan's wife as a nun, uh, Tim the Enchanter from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, blacksmiths, and a professor. Uh, 
Quote, we don't know how the, tra- the tradition came about, Nidi explains to the crowd, still in character, but to make healthy, but to make water healthy. There's a lot of disease in the water, so you use it to brew. For al- almost all of the characters, Ellen has written the scripts he knows by heart. While patrons may come for the beer, they stay for the fellowship. Even after Stone City Brewing closed its doors, Alan continued the blessing at other breweries, serving his Bach around eastern Iowa, including Old Capital Brew Works, Back Pocket, and Reunion Brewery's new Iowa City location. For several years, it's been one of Iowa Brewing's one of Iowa Brewing Company's largest annual events, drawing a full house to Cedar Rapids. Quote, people would get a hold of me and say, when's the next blessing? Where's it at? Alan said. It was a lot of former customers who were rabid about our beer. Now every February and March is blessing of the box season. The ritual's legend, while historically unclear, seems to be a tradition dating back centuries to help usher in spring. Cities across the United States have celebrated their own blessing of the Bach for many years, a particularly popular event in Wisconsin and Minnesota. Uh, <clears throat> quote, I think they enjoy the atmosphere and fun of it, he said, before taking a couple hours to make the rounds with old friends. It's a big social gathering. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Saturday, March 11th. I'm your reader, Jim Hill. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening.